Welcome to the Maritime Executives Podcast Series, In the Know. I'm Tony Munoz, Editor-in-Chief. Our Executive Corner Podcast will provide conversations with top executives concerning events and issues that are shaping our industry today. We will also bring you up to speed with the latest news and editorials covered by the Maritime Executive. Welcome to the Maritime Executive Magazine Podcast, In the Know. I'm Paul Benecki. In this edition, I'm joined by three experts in maritime cybersecurity for a conversation about how cyber threats affect maritime companies of all types and sizes, from small family businesses up to the largest conglomerates. Joining me today are Gary Kessler, Professor of Cybersecurity and Chair of the Department of Security Studies and International Affairs at Embry-Riddle, Andrew Lee, a partner at law firm Jones Walker and co-chair of the firm's privacy and data security team, and Lieutenant Kevin Kuhn, who specializes in cybersecurity policy at the Coast Guard's Washington headquarters. Gentlemen, thank you for joining me today. Perhaps we can start with a quick round of introductions. Gary, would you like to start first? Sure. Um, I'm Gary Kessler. Um, I'm a professor of cybersecurity at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. The area that I'm currently taking most of my look at, actually, is in navigation systems, and in particular, AIS. Kevin? I'm Kevin Kuhn. I'm with the Coast Guard headquarters out of the Office of Design and Engineering Standards. So the Coast Guard got in, into this sphere of operations in 2015 with the publication of the Coast Guard Cyber Strategy. The third strategic priority is really my world of work, and that's the protection of maritime critical infrastructure. And out of that, we did a study uh, in partnership with ABS, looking at 16 ports throughout the country to identify vulnerabilities. And uh, certainly, there are a lot of vulnerabilities out there. In that study, though, we also identified the mitigating factors that have gotten us to this place where we haven't really seen a a cyber attack cause loss of life or damage to the marine environment. Certainly, there's been major business impacts, but from a safety and protection of the environment aspect, we haven't quite seen that happen yet. And the reason we came to conclude was the human in the loop or the, the professional mariner at the helm, the company security officer at facilities. And with that in mind, as we move into a more automated supply chain, uh, we certainly need to get ahead of these risks now while we still have that human in the loop. So we've taken an approach uh, on vessels to leverage our relationships through the International Maritime Organization. And collectively around the world, everybody was pretty unanimous in uh, the idea that we need to take these cyber risks very seriously. And that came out uh, with the publication of the IMO cybersecurity guidelines, which were published in 2015 initially. They really put the companies on notice that cybersecurity should be addressed, starting with the CEO down through all levels of the organizations. And then in in 2017, uh, the Maritime Safety Committee published the MSC Resolution 428-98, which stated that cyber risk management should be incorporated into safety management systems by the year 2021. We're really excited about that recognition at the IMO level. There's been a lot of success stories, but the small and medium-sized companies in particular that might not have as much resources to devote to cyber risk management are particularly vulnerable in, in some cases. And Andy, perhaps you might be able to give us a little bit of background about the cybersecurity study you've been working on. Uh, sure. Um, so I'm Andy Lee. I'm a partner at Jones Walker in New Orleans, and my firm has been a traditional partner of the maritime industry in the Gulf South and on the Mississippi, Port of the Mississippi, and we have a broad reach as well. So 
My firm's 80 years old. And so we sort of cut our teeth in the maritime industry and obviously assisting them with mostly collisions and elisions and transactions to add on top of that. But when we saw the opportunity to do so, we decided that we'd focus on the maritime industry, although we're a broad-based firm and, and, and serve a lot of different industries, to, to determine what the threat landscape looked like and also what the readiness situation looked like among our stakeholders. And so we commissioned a survey, and not just of our clients, by the way, it was a broad survey that was random, and issued a white paper that reported the results of the survey among the stakeholders that responded. And I guess the overall takeaway from our inaugural survey was just an inescapable conclusion that the maritime industry is not prepared for future cyber attacks, which is, of course, a generalization. But um, at least among our survey respondents, there was a general lack of readiness. So 65% responded to the survey that their own companies were either somewhat unprepared or completely unprepared. And that was borne out among vessel operators, ports, and container shipping. When we broke it down by size of companies, the larger companies, more than 400 employees, reported that they were fairly ready, whereas companies less than 400 employees were significantly less ready and under 50 employees were uniformly completely not ready. What that signals is that even in the larger companies, there's not a general sense of comfort. But when you're talking about the smaller and mid-sized companies serving as vendors to these larger companies, they're not doing much. And um, it's, it's pretty concerning. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about the potential liabilities from a cyber attack on a maritime firm. And I'd, I'd like to break it down a bit into um, the commercial and legal liabilities for companies and maybe the national security liabilities as well. We, we hear a lot about the latter, but I think the industry may not be quite as familiar with um, the impact that a cyber attack can have on operations and on civil liabilities. Um, and so um, maybe starting with the, the latter, um, what do you guys think uh, small companies and mid-sized companies need to worry about if, if they are successfully attacked and if they don't defend it against, if they don't defend against it adequately, um, what can the consequences look like? Well, Gary Kessler here. One of the things that has resonated with me for a long time is I think that the maritime industry perhaps is second only to aviation in its concern about safety. And I think that we've not yet viewed cybersecurity as a safety issue. And that's one of the reasons it has not yet gotten the priority and the attention that perhaps it needs to by many CEOs and, and boards of trustees. So along those lines, what I see is if there's a cyber incident and somebody is in fact hurt, or as we're already seeing, loss of PII and who knows, maybe PHI, um, people are going to start suing the holders of this data. And um, I think that is not a liability that I hear spoken about a lot. Um, what we do hear about is, you know, um, loss of product, disruption to supply chain, um, and those kind of things. But But I wouldn't be surprised at some point if we start to see bigger liabilities coming into place, you know, if we don't start to address these issues aggressively. Andy, your perspective? Um, it can be devastating to a smaller or mid-sized company that has focused on this not at all. 
any shutdown in operations could mean that their contracting uh, larger company moves on to the next supplier, the next tugboat company, you know, the next uh, uh, vendor of any kind. And so that's one thing. Um, most of them aren't insured. They're looking at insurance more, but not, certainly not like the larger players. And when they're buying that cyber policy, they're not looking at the policy to see what's actually covered. So these small incidents, shutting them down for a day or two can be significantly devastating. They could they could lose not only customers of theirs, but th- that day or two in lost operations can result in such a revenue disruption that they can't recover. I would tell you that that's a business disruption that could cause them to go out of business. So there's that. There's also certainly loss of life uh, contingencies. And, and Kevin touched on this, that that has not happened yet. But one can imagine, given all of the threat vectors and the vulnerabilities that exist, that any nefarious hacker could cause damage, physical damage that could result in loss of life any day now. It could happen. And that's a real concern. So these are these are all very important to consider. But I think they would hit the smaller and the mid-sized companies the hardest. So we've already seen a number of really high-profile cyber attacks, like the one on Marsk and APM terminals. Are there any other examples that we should all know about? You know, Maersk is often referenced, and I think it's important to note that Maersk wasn't targeted. And, I, and, and that's an important thing with a lot of the cyber attacks, particularly for the smaller companies. Maersk was merely susceptible. And so they got caught up in a web of ransomware that was going around that hit tons of other organizations at the same time. And so many of the attacks right now while they're not necessarily targeting an individual organization, their vector is via the human, which again comes back to the, the, the training of people to understand abnormal events. I think that the comments that, that, that Andy and Kevin have both made about loss of life, I think the fact that nobody's died yet in a cyber attack in the maritime industry means we've been lucky. It doesn't mean that it's not possible. Yeah, and I'll, I'll add that there are a number of smaller incidents that don't make it to um, to the national news or any news for that matter, but that highlights a uniqueness to the, the maritime industry, the way companies and ownership is distributed among different nationalities and the liability is spread out. But an effect of that is that we don't have very good visibility into what the threats are and what incidents are happening. Uh, and there is not a very good information sharing mechanism specific to the maritime domain. The few organizations that are compiling information specific to the maritime domain, they are seeing um, a, no- a number of additional smaller attacks that, that don't have quite as much consequence as certainly uh, Maersk and Costco. From the Coast Guard side, the reporting requirements under uh, the Maritime Transportation Security Act for a cyber incident to reach the level of there being a legal re- requirement to report either to the NCIC or the National Response Center. Uh, that has to be um, a incident that manifests itself into a potential for a physical security breach. So those incidents that impact the business operations, those aren't getting reported th- through any official mechanisms. And We're only hearing about those sometimes anecdotally or through unofficial sharing mechanisms through different industry sectors, area maritime security committees, for example, are are sharing that sort of information. 
So what should the smaller mid-sized maritime companies be doing today to prepare for cyber attacks? Well, I'll take that. Um, so it's difficult to give you know a percentage of budget amount, but I think it was uh, Gary that pointed out early on a, a sentiment that I completely agree with, which is that as long as any company is thinking of cybersecurity as an IT issue only, then they're not, they're not grasping this issue well. And so when your company's executives are not thinking about this as equal to a physical safety concern, then they're not approaching it where they're putting any resources towards it that can adequately address it. So our survey responses among small companies answering this question, what percentage of your company's current budget is allocated to cybersecurity? 28% answered the question, 0%. And um, among that same group of companies, 70% said 1% to 2%. Now, larger companies are getting it. They're putting 3 to 6% towards their cybersecurity challenges in half of the cases. None are saying zero. So where will they spend their money is how much it will cost. They need to spend their money in compliance, I believe, first and foremost, which is doing an inventory assessment of their operations, all of their connected and internet-facing and otherwise connected components that have some sort of an attack surface associated with it. They got to know what they've got to begin with. And then on the compliance side, again, they're going to be dealing with what happens in the case of a breach. So they're going to need to design a cyber or a data breach response plan. And that involves employee resources at the employee level and at the executive level. There has to be executive buy-in to that. And then it involves probably bringing in external resources anywhere from lawyers to safety consultants who will be part of that team in the event of a breach so that there's an adequate and efficient and quick response to a breach, both that it, both so that it can be shut down and, and that the company can respond in a way that shows that it knows what it's doing. So that doesn't give you a dollar figure. Now, I would be hesitant to say that I could give you one, but in terms of percentage of their overall budget, you know, 1% is probably not enough. Over two makes more sense to me. I'm not saying that they should break the bank on it, but there needs to be a more executive level attention paid to it, which means resources. I, I agree with, with everything that Andy said. While information technology is obviously a critical piece of your cybersecurity plan, it is not wholly or solely the function of the IT department. And so you really need to be thinking about your entire information strategy. And that's why it really has to be lifted outside of, of just IT, particularly, as Andy alluded to, you know, since everybody lives in the physical world, we all think we understand something about physical security. So I know, yeah, I'm going to put locks on the doors and the windows, and maybe I'll put a fence around my, you know, cluster of buildings. But as soon as you jack into the internet, you are now global. And I think that is one of the things that when coming up with a cyber strategy, people don't necessarily think of because they don't recognize that they live in the cyber world and they don't know how to defend themselves in the cyber world, much less defending their company. So indeed, this is probably for many companies going to require external assets to come in and help you, you know, make that plan of how you're going to protect yourself. Although many of the protections are basic security 101 kind of stuff that if you would do it correctly, you and keep on top of it, 
you're not necessarily going to be susceptible to um, attacks that aren't directed at you. And you may even detect attacks that are directed at you better. And if you have a trained workforce, they can prevent many of the attacks as well. This is Kevin. Um, just to add on to what's been said, um, couldn't agree more about some of these low cost but big impact investments that particularly for small companies are really effective. There's a lot of comparisons between uh, cybersecurity and public health. Our country invests so many billions of dollars into health campaigns, but the most effective thing at preventing the spread of disease is washing your hands. When we look at cybersecurity, basic cyber hygiene done effectively by every employee in your company is, is hugely effective. I think something like 80% of cyber incidents are, are started by a failure of basic cyber hygiene. So those sort of things can be implemented at very low cost. There's some resources available to help with that. And I think for a company to start from, from nothing, that's a good place to start. You take a tiered approach and, and you take steps to meet that end state. You don't meet it immediately. You, you say, all right, this quarter, we're going to do these activities because we have this much money to, to use and this much time that we can do training with our employees. And then we know that there's other stuff that we'd like to do, but we can't get to it right now. And you knowingly accept those risks and prioritize those risks as you have the time and resources. And I think that's an effective way to, to roll this out, particularly for, for small and medium-sized companies. Yeah, I think a key thing that Kevin, that Kevin just said is essentially human resources, right? So, yep. so the, the issue is how much time are, are, is the executive and the supervisor going to spend on this? And that's a cost, and they need to mm -hmm. make a commitment to it. And it's also a cost to institute training. It's also an outside cost because you're probably not going to have the trainer on staff, but that's going to be a cost of employees taken away from their jobs to add to their training. But those are those things that, that, are, that Kevin and Gary just mentioned are, are pretty simple, and they do represent a budget allocation, but they're not the kinds of hard costs that make your execs shudder when you tell them they got to spend it. But, but you got to get them away from saying, I'm, I'm better off doing nothing. And that's been difficult. Well, you, you know, a couple months ago, I had an article that was in Maritime Executive on exactly this, looking at the return on negligence of not investing in cyber, as opposed to our often, well, futile attempts to look at the ROI of investing in cyber. And I don't think we can look at cyber as an asset that you invest in and get money back on. So your comments are, are totally spot on that it is going to require investment of time and people. The payoff is that particularly for small companies, cyber threats are an existential threat to your company. So how can you possibly ignore an existential threat. Kevin, do you think you might be able to give us a rundown on what basic cyber hygiene entails? Yeah. Uh, well, an interesting thing, I, I was speaking with someone last week about this and how millennials have such a different understanding of cybersecurity. And, and the person I was talking to was a little bit on the older side. And she said, millennials just don't believe in privacy. They put everything out there on Facebook or Snapchat or whatever. And um, there's this idea of a zero trust net network where you believe that everything that you do on a, on a computer or handheld device 
is subject to being corrupted. And that frame of mind is kind of a, a generational shift. And, and millennials, a lot of times do think about that. And so that's one way to manage your risk is, you know, that everything is susceptible to being corrupted. And so anything that indeed warrants privacy, you're going to take much different measures than you do in your day-to-day -day operations. But generally, basic cyber hygiene is things like strong passwords and having credentials for only the people who are employees. I was on a, a ship last year and touring around the bridge, and they had the administrative password to the ECTIS uh, navigation computer taped on a sticky note right next to it. And of course, when operations are your priority, sometimes you knowingly accept the risk of putting an administrative password in public view like that. And sure, there's access control to get on the ship to begin with, but there are, are risks to that. And your members of the, the Bridge Watch team shouldn't be logging on to the ECTIS in administrative mode. There should be an operational separate login that doesn't provide the keys to the kingdom, as the, the cyber professionals call it, where you have access to control all sorts of settings on your network. So basic access control, I think, is probably the number one thing. And um, also having an assessment and knowing what is on your network, uh, knowing how many computers and uh, handheld devices you have is, is a really good first step. And then the thing that comes after that is making sure that all your software is patched and, and updates are available and installed. And a unique vulnerability, particularly on shipboard navigation systems, you know, on your iPhone, you might get an update every two weeks or a month and it comes up automatically and you install it while you're asleep, that sort of thing. So Apple's able to throw huge amounts of resources at building these updates and making sure that the most recent threats and vulnerabilities are addressed in that update. But when you look at an Ectus, for example, how many Ectus installations are there worldwide? It's not that many per Ectus manufacturer. So they're not necessarily going to be able to devote as, as much resources to identifying the threats and vulnerabilities that a company like Apple is going to do on your iPhone. That's a kind of a unique vulnerability that we face. And I, I know the Ectus manufacturers are leaning forward when it comes to cybersecurity and trying to make sure that they're doing the right thing for their installations. What about outdated operating systems like Windows XP? We often hear about companies getting hacked in part because they're running systems that cannot be updated anymore. There are a lot of big companies that are still running vulnerable operating systems. And, and it's not due to sloth. It's due to and with what happened with the British healthcare system when um, Petya first came out or WannaCry first came out. They had applications that required Windows XP. And if they left Windows XP, the applications themselves were not updated to be able to use a later operating system. So they were stuck using an operating system that was three years out of date. Um, it, it's quite an investment to build an application and you tie it to the latest operating system available at the time. And it is an incredible investment in, in a lot of ways. When that operating system changes its fundamental platform, I mean, most people think, well, you know, I'm, I'm using Word. Word used to run on XP. Then they gave me Windows 7. Word still works. 
And it's because those applications are not as critically tied to the components of the operating system. And changes to operating systems can make many applications just not work anymore. So, you know, until the vendor comes out um, with, with using an updated operating system, you're sort of stuck. Yeah, and the other thing about XP, which Microsoft abandoned for patching, at least in 2014. Yeah is that it was very popular. It, it worked. And um, what Vista came along afterwards, it's, and, and nobody liked that. So there's this comfort level with it. So you're going to have these cyber uh, warriors in the C-suite telling the executive, this thing is dangerous, and there's been no actual breaches that they can point to other than Maersk. And um, I think Maersk was the vulnerability brought in from the outside with an unpatched system. And it's going to be a hard sell job. Kevin, you mentioned that the IMO is eventually going to require that cyber threats be included in a company's SMS. What kind of regulatory action can we expect at the IMO level and the national level in the years to come? Yeah, well, that's a great question. The ISM code and safety management systems are such a unique regulatory mechanism that makes them, when they're done well, incredibly effective, but it also makes enforcement of compliance a little bit tricky. You know, the ISM code doesn't really name specific risks that should be addressed in safety management systems. It says that the company shall identify and assess all risks. Cybersecurity is a newly developing risk, and IMO, through the MSC resolution, stated that cyber is a risk that should be addressed in safety management systems. But how you do that, and how do you determine if it effectively being done is the tricky part. And a big role in that is going to be through the class societies as they conduct their annual uh, safety management system audits. They're really going to be the ones um, uh, seeing where the needle falls to determine if a company has effectively incorporated cyber into their SMS. And in the, the IMO guidelines, it's recognized that shipping companies are all very different. And so some ships and companies that have very limited uh, cyber-dependent systems, it can be very simple to identify and address those cyber-related risks. But on the other hand, companies with very complex ships and offshore platforms, it's going to be need to be much more robust. So as we get towards 2021, we are, are working with class societies as well as industry organizations, individual companies to help with the development of best practices and industry consensus standards as a way to enable companies to effectively incorporate cyber risks. And then the, the compliance is going to roll out in an incremental fashion come 2021. There's, there's going to be some companies that, that might not have addressed it fully, but the class societies working as, as recognized organizations are, are going to work with the companies to get them to where they need to be. So we've covered the business risks and civil liabilities associated with a cyber attack. What are the worst case scenarios for you guys, the kinds of scenarios that keep you up at night? Well, this, Kevin, I'll, I'll go ahead and kick it off. I think the vulnerabilities inherent with GPS is really a, a major thing that, that is probably one of the, the weakest links in the, the maritime transportation system. The opportunity for a bad actor to manipulate a GPS signal 
while a vessel is passing through a, a critical waterway. Then you have a physical incident that manifests from that GPS outage. And then the vulnerabilities that can be can fall victim during the recovery from that operation could lead to a real disruption to the supply chain. Well, Kessler here, I like the um, idea of a vessel being able to cyber infect a port or vice versa or another vessel for that matter. But my personal favorite is ransomware attack on a ship at sea. The consequence might be I shut your ship down unless you pay me my ransom. And it'll probably be more than the paltry $300 that they ask for now. But uh, I mean, because Kevin stole a little bit of my, uh, what well, one of the things <laughs> that I think about a lot, uh, obviously nav systems, you know, the, the ability to spoof or attack those in real life. But ransomware, presumably I could launch a ransomware attack or build a Stuxnet vulnerability, Stuxnet-like vulnerability into hardware and take over a ship, roll a ship over by impacting its ballast systems, and any number of, of cyber physical attacks. And, and you know, we, we tend to think of cyber attacks as I'm going to hack my database or I'm going to you know, deface your website or something silly like that. But once I can actually get into the physical systems on your ship, I can obviously have some, some very, very long-lasting uh, negative effects. Yeah, so I'll, I'll say that um, as an offshoot of oil and gas pipeline network that covers the country that's critical to the uh, power infrastructure. Here in the Gulf, we have tankers pull up to uh, offloading facilities and onloading facilities, bringing oil combustibles from far away or putting them in their tankers from offloading down by Houston's offshore port or one south of here, Port Fushan. And you can really take the the pipeline vulnerability of the attack vector surfaces that, that's going on in that area, which is keeping a lot of people that are focused on pipelines up at night, and extend it to that situation so that a hacker who, and many, there have been many hacks of pipelines. Luckily, none have resulted in the US in loss of life, but it's been widely reported that the Chinese have been into the US pipeline systems, which are almost completely privately owned. and very poorly regulated and have collected lots and lots of data on them. They have antiquated systems just like ships. They have uh, on, they have SCADA systems that control the pressure points in that system so that valves can be turned remotely. And if you can extend that to the offshore loading facility for an uh, oil tanker, then you could see a manipulated explosion that could be very devastating. And this is the kind of thing that I think should concern a lot of people. These all sound like very grave scenarios, far above the civil and business risks associated with cyber attack. Do you have any closing thoughts for our listeners? Any advice, perhaps, for ship owners and for maritime companies out there? Well, I'm, I'm prepared to start by saying, after all of the gloom and doom that we talk about with cyber issues, I would hate for anybody to take as... The, the takeaway from this, oh my God, oh my God, just throw my hands in despair and walk away. Because I don't think that that is the situation. I think what we have to do is fully embrace the new world of being in cyberspace. It's not really that new, but we, for many, it is. Um, I think we need to um, open our eyes very widely to the potential vulnerabilities and exploits and bad actors that are out there. And Take this like any other 
new task that you would take and say, okay, we've got some problems. How would we solve them? And ultimately, that means possibly bringing in other people who can look at your network. You know, I've always taken the posture in protecting my own cyber defense that the bad guy out there knows everything about my network that I do and is smarter. That's not always correct, but I figure it's the way to plan and it's probably the way to bet. We we just have to acknowledge that the issue is there and look at ways to resolve it rather than despairing that the problem is too big and we don't know how to deal with it. Yeah, I'll jump in here and, and agree that it's, it is definitely a graspable problem. And I've given presentations on this, and they've given me the re- one person gave the reaction the other day. Aren't you saying that we're all doomed? And, um, <laughs> and I think that, that you're right, uh, Paul, to say, look, let's step back a bit. There are things we can do today. Um, one simple solution or, or recommendation, in addition to the ones that have been given, would be to find folks that have done this. There are sharing organizations, the um, Maritime Report Security Information Sharing and Analysis Organization, the long acronym MPS-ISAL, is a great resource operating in multiple ports around the country that have open meetings. And and I would encourage anybody interested in this to, as a first step, go and attend one of those meetings. The back and forth and the exchange of ideas that would happen in that situation in one of those meetings will really help spur interest and spur action which is really all you need. Um, You need to come back, not just listening to us, but listen to others that are operators on the water that are saying, I'm doing it and it's not so bad. And I think that that would be a great first step for any listener. Yeah, this is Kevin. I'll I'll, uh, echo that. I've seen uh, some great things come out of the MPS ISAO. You know, the first time you call the MPS ISAO or the DHS NKIC or your Area Maritime Security Committee, Cyber Subcommittee, the first time you call them shouldn't be when you have that cyber incident. You should make contact now, and uh, maybe you don't have the resources to do all the things that, that they might suggest you do, but you do one thing, and then when you have more resources, you do another thing. Also, uh, a plug, the Coast Guard publishes most of our happenings and resources on the Maritime Commons blog. Uh, From there, it links to various other entities, but uh, that's our one-stop shop. There's a cyber risk management tab on there, and you can see everything that's going on uh, on Maritime Commons. Great. Well, thank you all very much for making the time to join me today. I really appreciate it, and it's great to be able to share your expertise with the broader community. Thanks. Yep. Thank you. Thank you for listening to In the Know, the Maritime Executive Magazine podcast. I'm Paul Benecki. We hope you'll join us again for our next exciting discussion on maritime technology, business, and policy. In the meantime, please visit us online at www.maritime-executive.com for the latest news and views from around the industry.